Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Good security starts with strong identity, and this applies in both the physical and the digital worlds. But in recent years, there's been a growing debate around how we verify identities. Passwords are not robust enough. Biometrics can be intrusive, and they're not always reliable. Two-factor authentication can be expensive to roll out. Yet the demand is there for strong authentication that we can trust in government, for individuals, and in business. All this has led the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence, to work on a new framework for trusted identity. Security Insights invited Carsten Maple, Professor of Cyber Systems Engineering at the University of Warwick and Fellow of the Alan Turing Institute, to explain more. What we really want to do is create digital identity systems that are trustworthy. So you'll know that um, digital identity is a really big thing at the moment. There are a lot of um, advances in uh, digital identity in governments around the world. The UK government itself has just um, issued a framework for trust in digital identity systems that was released uh, earlier this year. One of the key challenges is if if we build these identity systems, the cost of them failing or, or being misused can be significant. So what we're doing is we're, we're trying to lay out the principles and, and technologies and approaches to have this trustworthy uh, digital identity. So we've got um, more than 35 researchers, research engineers, project managers uh, to help deliver this comprehensive program. We're really fortunate that we get to work with uh, governments and industry and academics around the world. And we've got supporters um, such as the World Bank that sit on our advisory board and ID for Africa. We've recently released a new technical briefing and we're inviting collaboration and comment on that. It concerns the facets of trustworthiness in digital identity systems. So looking at What are the elements that are required so that an identity system can claim to be worthy of trust by citizens and by governments around the world? So what is wrong with the identity systems that we use at the moment? Well, one of the things is that um, the world's evolving, right? Um, And we've had identity systems for, for a little while for specific use cases, Um, And identity and access management is now becoming a real um, need for any kind of interaction, not just on the internet, but um, in in the physical world. So we can see with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, people are having to assert more about who they are or or what uh, credentials they might have. So for example, Um, what we're seeing is people having to assert that they are double vaccinated to get into maybe a a sporting event, for example. Um, So as we're seeing this importance and commonplace use of of identity, we've got a real challenge to make sure that um, this security of these identity systems can be managed. So um, 
I'm not sure if you're aware, but the, a, a recent report uh, called Trends in Securing Digital Identities from Dimensional Research, uh, the organization that created that, um, has found that 80% of, of those that were surveyed have, have said the shift to remote working that we're all having to do at the moment has increased focus on the security of identity systems and that they are not feeling confident in the ability to secure employees' um, identities. So um, we've got a lot of challenges that, that we need to address in um, overcoming the identity challenge, as it were. I think that what we uh, need to ensure is that the systems that are being used can be seen to be trustworthy because if, if I, I develop a system and I can make some claims about that system that it's secure, for example, then that might help you as, as um, either uh, an information security officer in an organization or as, as the finance director, be clear that there's some kind of assurance in, in what I uh, claim to be. But at the same time, those, those workers that work in, um, in, in an organization, they need to be confident that that system is trustworthy in the sense that it doesn't track everything that they do, that it remains uh, privacy preserving. Um, they need to make sure that the, the, the system that's being used is ethical um, so that um, how decisions are made, you know, so maybe about my bonuses uh, might be made, are open and transparent, for example. So what, what we're having to do is address a whole raft of new challenges that we haven't had previously because of that increasing reliance on identity. So there's a real balance there to be struck because when people look at identity, a lot of times, at least in business and government, it's about access control. It's the access management part of identity and access management rather than the identity part. And that raises some questions about um, practicality as well as ethics, doesn't it? In, indeed, it does. Um, so, yeah, we've got, got reasons that we want to identify people. And as you say, identity and access control um, management systems are, are, are really important and being used a lot at the moment. Uh, they're being used in a range of different uh, circumstances. So, so we used to see them largely for access for employees, for example, but now there are, there are a whole raft of customer identity and access management uh, solutions uh, emerging, which are all about ensuring that a customer who, who doesn't belong to an organization but equally has rights to different services need to be managed. So um, what we're seeing is we want to give people access to resources, be they employees or be they customers, but we need to make sure that we have got some way of determining who they are or what their rights are. Uh, and that's why we th see things such as role-based access control. So as you said, uh, control of, of system, access to systems being um, around identifying the role that a specific user might have. So if we go back to the point from the research about the volume of additional identities that organizations are having to manage, what threats follow from that or what risks follow from that if that's not done properly? Yeah, so, so the, the thing is there's a whole range of, of risks uh, that, that can happen. So, so we talk about 
trustworthiness. So it's only mentioned security and privacy and ethics, but there's also risks around the reliability um, of, of a, an identity system. So as there become many more identity systems and they become increasingly important, what we need to make sure is that I can be reliably identified. So if I give some credentials to a, a system, and we know there's all kinds of identity uh, systems that can be used now, certainly biometrics are, are increasingly used. What we need to make sure is if I submit my thumb uh, to, a, to a, a thumbprint reader, and I can get access, that it's reliable that each time I access it, I can access that service that I'm entitled to, that those access control policies allow. So reliability is important because these services that rely on my identity are becoming um, increasingly important to me and increasingly used. So we, we've got to make sure that the system remains uh, available to those who are supposed to use it legitimately. There's also an issue of, of robustness. Many of these systems that we're devising now are de designed to work in a certain context, in a certain environment. But what we should be able to do is, is to ensure that our systems are robust. How can they manage if there is an unexpected deluge of um, access requests, for example? So if I talk about robustness in a sense, a good example for the listeners might be if they've been to a sports stadium when there is a particular event on that's very popular, how robust is it to get a system? Because when there's a lot of access for that telephone system, can you get a good connection reliably. So, so in terms of reliable, I mean that you can keep getting it, but robust is that it can handle this change in demand pattern. Um, so robustness becomes uh, important. Robustness around biometric identity systems would include the fact that, you know, if I have had some kind of um, accident, um, I've cut my finger, the, the system should be able to handle the fact that I am not presenting what I would normally present, but I'm presenting a perturbed version or some environmental conditions, but it can still robustly operate as it was supposed to do. And finally, the thing that we need is, is resilience. And I, I guess if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's about the importance of resilient systems. Um, our supply chains have not been resilient, uh, certainly early on in the pandemic, uh, where we couldn't get um, some of the uh, goods out to the, to the shops and to the people that we wanted. If we have a system for identification, but for some reason it comes under, let, let's say, cyber attack or some kind of undue um, pressure, then that system should be able to recognise that it's under duress, it should be able to remain operational, and ultimately it should be able to recover to a state. That's what we'd like to see in a resilient um, identity system. And those facets are what we're working on to make sure that um, systems um, are worthy uh, of trust. And what we want to do is create measures so that you can actually objectively sometimes state 
this is um, a trustworthy system because it has these features. It, it's got a certain reliability performance um, measure. It, it adheres to certain standards um, and it uses certain advanced techniques. So, so that's where we are with the, the, the program at the Turing. So when it comes to these systems, particularly when you're talking about large-scale or population-scale systems of the types that governments are embarking on, that bar for resilience, that bar for robustness is very high. It's necessarily very high, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And it, and it's because we're constantly engaging with, with digital services that impact on our life uh, at large. Um, one of the things that was mooted and, it, and gives an interesting um, sort of scenario for people to think about is there, there was uh, talk about I haven't travelled on train since um, since since the pandemic started. But if you want to travel on a train and you have to show that you are um, you are fully vaccinated or that you whichever kind of measure is decided, but if you want to um, have that. Um, credential that you want to present or the fact that you've you know recently tested negative for covid then the 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 resilience of the system that and, and robustness becomes really important because what i don't want to do is get on a train go to scotland uh and then in scotland i i decide to board to come home from scotland and all of a sudden my phone has been stolen or my phone has run out of battery or some other problem has happened and there is no backup system and I end up having to stay in Scotland. So there's just one current example of where um, I have to prove something about myself. So something tied to my identity, but if it's not designed properly, I could have this rather negative experience of uh, being... Um, stranded in some place without the appropriate um, finance or appropriate um, um, clothing for, for the period. And indeed, that's why the the rollout of biometric identity technologies has been relatively slow. And, you know, where most of the time, most people would encounter those type of systems at borders, because that's an area where the requirement is is pressing, you could afford to invest in the technology to make the system robust and particularly quick. Uh, whereas when it's been tried in retail, the number of, for example, false negatives, cards declined because the fingerprint scanner wasn't working properly, that type of thing, uh, just created too much friction in the process. And over the last few years, I think maybe even the last 10 years, we've seen a bit of a pulling away from biometrics in that general use. And it's uh, been more limited to high security buildings and things like data centres, actually, talking about IT, uh, but also you know military establishments. And of course, the one that most people are familiar with is the border control controls, but it hasn't gained more sort of general acceptance, perhaps because it's actually hard to do well. So is it hard to do well? The first thing I'd like to say is about your observation that I think is really well made uh, about risk. This, this is the important thing about when we use uh, biometrics, we have to make a, a risk assessment. So what's interesting is um, that if you think about, um, you mentioned about retail where you might use a, a fingerprint um, or, or um, an iris scan or, or something else to verify who you are for, for, for payment. Um, that seems a, a lot of work when we can just use a four-digit PIN, of course. So, so we think, well, what is the risk? Well, there's, you know, you're talking about, what, £100 worth of shopping maybe. 
Um, so the risk isn't worth it of putting in that friction, designing a fully reliable um, uh, and robust system might be too costly. And actually you'd rather do the, um, take the losses from, from some of the fraud that happens if somebody has um, a pin stolen. But that kind of risk-based approach, of course, we should understand um, goes much further than that because there is a risk-based approach that says actually up to 30 pounds you don't need to even authenticate with a PIN number. Just the card, just having the card is sufficient. Of course, you could lose that card. Um, somebody else finds it. It's not you, and they could use it. So, so they are posing as you. The identity, identity authentication is not correct, um, but it's a loss that you accept. And what we see is even more so, and, and sorry to come back to the pandemic again, but what we see is that in cases where um, there are different circumstances, we may say our appetite changes. So what we've seen in the pandemic, we've raised the contactless um, limit to 45 pounds rather than 30 pounds. And what we've said is, okay, we're going to expose ourselves to a slightly greater risk, but at the same time, there is it, it reduces a public health risk of having to touch the, the keypad. So that kind of uh, approach is really important to understand. And that means that when we want to create biometrics that are, you know, foolproof, um, and I've got to say, there's, there's a lot of work at the minute on biometric spoofing. Um, if we want to put the right kind of technology in place, and there's something called liveness detection, um, that would detect whether, you know, the fingerprint that I submit is actually connected to my finger or if it's just a, um, a photocopy. And there have been some clever photocopies in the last few years that have fooled some of the leading fingerprint sensors. Um, if we want to do that liveness, then that costs more money, right? And it, it's, it's going to be more challenging. It's more ro robust in terms of the identification, maybe, um, and it's more secure, but... Um, it does come at an added cost. So we're always weighing up all of these different uh, parameters around an identity system and, and, and proving your identity, which includes the um, accuracy of identification, yeah, because you want something that's going to be um, perform well. Uh, it needs to perform in a timely manner as well. It's got to have low friction. I, I don't know. Um, I doubt many of the listeners have had um, a retina scan um, for uh, biometric identification, but that is quite invasive, right? So it, rather than an iris scan, which looks at an image of, of your eyeball, a retina scan actually takes measurements from the back of your eye um, and you have to go close and it's a bit more intrusive and, and you know, some uh, earlier scanners for sure cause some pain. Well, that's not going to be worth it in most cases. But if you are talking about national security, then that might be something that you say we need to do. So there's all that balance and, and decision in the design and engineering to consider. It's a very fine line then that people have to tread or certainly governments have to tread when they're rolling out these systems at scale. But one question that arises from this, clearly things like automated border gates or uh, contactless payment are a fantastic convenience 
but in some respects, managing identity has actually become harder in the digital world because it's so easy to copy digital information. And having written about this before in the various systems, some of which you've mentioned, such as liveness detection, when identity was a person physically present and a document physically present with them, you could train somebody to assess that identity and decide whether to allow them to withdraw money or allow them to go through the gate or allow them to board the train. But now with the digital world, we we don't have that ability. So we're relying entirely on systems. How does your research look at that? What are you thinking in terms of how identity might develop, in particular, how that trust in identity is going to develop as we come to a point where actually the paper identity or the physical identity card is probably a thing of the past? It's an interesting point you make about the future of identity. And if we consider um, what you said about biometrics, about it not moving in, in terms of implementation as fast as you might expect, one thing that we do expect is that it will rapidly change going forward. Uh, and as you say, um, the, the, the more paper-based credentials uh, may be less common. Um, and we are definitely seeing less of human in the loop of identification. Um, and, and that's principally driven by cost and the remoteness of access uh, to, to services. So this does present a challenge as we start to move very quickly um, through um, the identity process and given the importance of identity. But what we must do is ensure that we do understand what we were being offered by a paper-based. So, so in terms of um, this, this aspect of uh, resilience, um, in, in terms of you know, the, the systems that we use in identity, we should think about all those people that are now working at home. That happened very quickly, that change. And many systems and many uh, organizations were not ready for that change um, at such a rapid uh, uh, in, at such a rapid pace, but also at the scale that, that that happened. And what that led to was really some forgiving on the identity and access control because it couldn't probably, properly be managed. So you've got a choice. Do, do we relax some of the um, identity protocols and some of the requirements that we might like to do? Um, to ensure that people can at least be functional in their role. Uh, and, and that was one example where, unfortunately, you know, security took a, a second uh, seat to the functioning of, of the organization because there was a lot of concern that businesses may not survive. So what they had to do is manage that and say, we'll take the risk that, there's some, that there may be some... Um, people accessing systems that shouldn't and we'll try and deal with that if and when that happens rather than ensuring that everything is as secure as we would like because it will just take us too long to onboard so what we're seeing is is, is this uh, big change and we've got to think about that and at the Turing what we're looking at is what does identity of the future look like what is identity 2.0 what what is the art of the possible um, one of the things that we are looking at, for example, is, is the use of something called privacy-enhancing technologies. Um, now, I'm sure many of your 
listeners have have customers um, that log on to um, systems or have uh, employees that log on to systems. And what we like to do from a security point of view or from a business development point of view is know everything about what people are doing. So have this linkability between all of their actions. Um, So this can be really useful for us. But can we gain some of the same benefits, yeah, um, in a way that allows us to to afford privacy to those who are acting, um, interacting with our systems? So there are a variety of privacy-enhancing technologies that have been developed over recent years. Um, And some of these can be used in identity systems, So what we may be able to do is is identify somebody by actions, but rather than taking all of those actions that somebody's doing and sending them centrally, we can have a system which actually says, we're just going to take some aggregate data from you. But it still gives us the necessary confidence in the identity and the use of, of a device and the identity of a person. So we're, we're really trying to reimagine um, how identity uh, would be. So rather than have something that's a little incremental, um, we're trying to say, how can we solve this um, in, in a more transformational approach? And who ultimately is responsible for this and, and who's going to set the standards? So, so that's a really uh, interesting question about um, who, who should be um, re- responsible because, of course, there is a role for government to, to take in, in this uh, arena. And the government does have a, a number of regulators that can provide assistance. So um, if we're talking about identity through financial systems, then of course the Financial Conduct Authority um, is, a, is a great start and does have a role in advising and, and um, forming regulation and legislation uh, around that. So um, the, the, in a specific use case, it could be finance or it could be in health, or if it's generally about data, the information commissioner's officer uh, will, will have a role. But there's also a role for industry groups themselves to think about what do we need to do to change how identity is in the future. And of course, they will be minded about the regulation space and the legal space that they're operating in now and how it will evolve. But there is an opportunity for them to rethink uh, and take stock of identity and say, how can we ensure that we gain the trust of our customers and our employees? And that is the thing. that I think is, is really important. Can we consider the value proposition about developing a trusted um, identity system? So using the principles of trustworthiness, those things that um, are, are claims that you can make about the system that would warrant somebody trusting it and turning that into a trust relationship with your customers or, or your employees. And you say you have a four-year research project. What would your what is your milestones going to be? You're hoping to achieve by the end of those four years. We've been going just a little over a year, um, nearly eighteen months, and what we've been doing so far is really looking at what is the state of the art. We've been looking at um, the 
implementations of identity, the theory behind identity in a, through a number of lenses. And what we're starting to do now is release those kind of principles, um, such as the technical briefing I just mentioned, but also releasing software that can be used for um, examining risk within identity systems. So what we're going to do is, is have a period of, a, of at least a couple of years where we're starting to drip feed out some of the work, but really take on the fundamental science that will change the discipline. And as we go further along the, the, the program, we're gonna start seeing more implementable or implemented solutions. So code releases, for example. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the, the four-year period, we envisage that we will be able to have a framework that can be used to assess identity systems in practice, um, and that we will have some of our tools and techniques that were developed actually deployed in developing nations so that they can enhance the trustworthiness of their identity solutions. Professor Carsten Maple on how he hopes the Alan Turing Institute's framework will roll out over the next few years and provide some practical answers to the questions of trust and digital identity. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next episode, we'll look at the security threats posed by printed documents. Is it time we all went back to a clean desk policy? That will be live on Wednesday, August the 4th, and I do hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes via our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.